Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Berry. Dr. Ken Berry has been a family physician for more than 20 years. He's written three books, Lies My Doctor Told Me, Kicking Ass After 50, and Common Sense Labs. He joins us today to discuss one of our perennial favorite topics on this show, fiat food and the corruption of the food and medical industry. He's got a lot to share, particularly after he read the fiat standard, so I'm looking forward to getting his take on that. Thank you for joining us, Ken. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. So to begin with, tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you escaped, I should say, <laughs> from mainstream medical uh, advice to eat 
highly processed garbage and keep taking drugs into telling people to actually try and be healthy for a change. So I'm a a classically trained allopathic physician. I went to a state medical university, graduated, did a family medicine residency, and uh, then started practicing medicine both in the emergency department and in clinical practice. And I've been practicing uh, family medicine uninterrupted for over 22 years now. And during the first few years of my medical practice, I was the epitome of an ignorant doctor. I had been trained four years of medical school. But after the first two years, which are basic sciences, never again was physiology really mentioned. Never again was nutrition mentioned. It was all about which pharmaceutical fits this patient. And so during the first few years of my medical practice, I was the doctor who would say, you just need to join the gym and join Weight Watchers. You need to move more and eat less. That's why you're fat. That's why you have type 2 diabetes. That's why you have hypertension. Never giving another thought to the physiology and the pathophysiology and definitely not giving any thought to the anthropology, paleoanthropology of that question of why am I metabolically ill? And it was only when I became metabolically ill that this suddenly became very important to me because uh, some people say I have an accent. I don't think I do, but I live in the, the southeastern United States in Tennessee. And here people are very, have a very common sense attitude. For example, you wouldn't take your car to be repaired to a mechanic whose car wouldn't start, right? You would not uh, go and get a haircut from a hairdresser whose hair looks terrible. Just that kind of common sense thing. And and so it immediately occurred to me when I got on a scale and found out I weighed 297 pounds and I checked my hemoglobin A1C and I was pre-diabetic. The first thought that came to my mind is, okay, so I'm I'm basically going to be a fat doctor telling my fat patients, this is how you stop being fat. No, no, I can't. That's no, I'm, that is too incongruous. I cannot do Many, that. many such cases. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, on my quest to fix my metabolic health, and so I hang out at about 230 pounds now. My A1C is great. Uh, reversed all the metabolic issues that I had. Uh, in my personal quest to to basically rediscover what what is a proper human diet that's that's kind of where I came from and so I started sharing that first with my patients in in real life but then at one point my wife said you know what you're doing is really important you get that right you shouldn't just be sharing that with 30 or 40 patients a day you should be sharing that with the world you need to start a youtube channel to which i replied that's foolishness. I'm a doctor. Why would I have a YouTube channel? And so one day I came home from the clinic and she said, how many people did you help today? And I said, oh, 35, 40, something like that. She said, that's great. I'm proud of you. But what if you could have helped three or 4,000 people today? And so as any good husband does, I took my wife's counsel and I started a YouTube channel. That's kind of history since then. We have almost 3 million subscribers on YouTube. And I don't, I don't chalk that up to me being a handsome guy or very articulate. I chalk that up to people try what I say and it immediately starts to work. It's sustainable. It's nutritionally complete and it helps them uh, reverse their metabolic diseases and go back to being the baseline state of Homo sapien, which is healthy 
and vigorous and vibrant and, and not mentally clouded. That's the baseline state for everybody, even for the people listening to this right now going, yeah, but not for me. I'm different. No, you're not different. No, you have the same DNA. If you remove the slow poisons, which is fiat food from your diet, and you reintroduce enough ancestrally appropriate foods to your diet, you your body will start to heal and you will slowly start to return to the baseline. Your hardwired baseline is optimal, vibrant health. Yeah, that is uh, very, um, very inspiring to hear. So what was it exactly that caused you to start questioning the mainstream advice and um, what led you down the rabbit hole of calling the other doctors allopathic doctors? I think that's, uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, this is this is a term that people who are in the alternative health community, people who are called cranks by CNN and uh, the New York Times and Harvard, this is how they get back at the CNN and uh, Harvard doctors. They call them allopathic doctors, which I think is a linguistic uh, counterattack because it places them on the defensive because yeah. the idea that these doctors who are just peddling um, essentially pharmaceutical products and that have been invented over the last 100 years pretend like they are the mainstream, they are the correct, they are the scientific approach to medicine, whereas all these other people are just cranks peddling insane pre-scientific nonsense. It's as if it's like with transportation technology, you have 20th century cars and then everything else is just you know, horse carriages and all of these ancient things, which is not the case because cars are recent, but human bodies are not recent. Our body has been the same for a very, very long time. So the things that yes. people knew about the human body before the 20th century are a lot more relevant to our lives than the things that people knew about horse carriages in a world in which we've replaced horse carriages with cars. So what is it that uh, made you question allopathic? And that's a, that's a very important point that we need to explore in some detail. So my, my epiphany occurred when I, so I lived in scrubs, right? And they have a drawstring waist. And so you really don't get any feedback from your clothing as to whether you're gaining weight or not. And I knew I'd gain some weight, but I didn't realize how much until one uh, morning I, I decided to put on my just regular pants and the button had about four inches before it would meet with the buttonhole. And I was like, oh crap. Okay. It's worse than I thought. So I jumped on a scale and I'm six foot three inches and I weighed 297 pounds, which made, put me firmly in the camp of severe obesity, which has a long list of known outcomes and none of them are good. Uh, also I was pre-diabetic. And so I immediately picked up a copy of the American Diabetes Association diet handout that we give to newly diagnosed diabetics. And I'm like, well, I've got to tighten up because I can't be that fat doctor. So I started following the American Diabetes Association guidelines. I started jogging three days a week, lots of whole grain bread, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of fruit juice smoothies, uh, cut out all the saturated animal fat, all got rid of all the bacon, all the, all the red meat and rechecked my labs in three months. And I was actually more pre-diabetic. That was my epiphany, like, oh, crap. So every, all, the advice that I've been giving to all of my thousands of patients about diet didn't work for me. And here's the problem. Most doctors think that patients 
are non-compliant. That's a word we throw around, just like allopathic physician. Oh, they're non-compliant, right? So I told them to move more and eat less, but they're really just, they're lying on the sofa eating Cheetos and ding-dongs. That's what they were doing. But now I was faced with this alternate reality that perhaps, just perhaps, the patients had tried my dietary advice. And it wasn't that they were non-compliant. It's just that my stupid advice didn't work. That's That was what I was faced with. And I was like, ah, I need to go back to school when it could, with regards to human nutrition. And so I started reading very broadly and widely outside of the allopathic track, outside of mainstream medicine, trying to figure out what I needed to do. And I came upon paleo by Lauren Cordain. I came upon primal by Mark Sisson. And then uh, I, got, I bought a copy of the Atkins Diet Revolution for 50 cents at a rummage sale. And those three books kind of, I, I was like, okay, well, these three books are exactly backwards from everything I thought I was supposed to be recommending, but let me try it and see what happens. And I immediately started to lose weight. I immediately started to feel better because at 35 years of age, I felt awful and I chalked it up. Oh, you're getting older. And so anybody, anybody out there in your 30s, 40s, 50s or 60s, if you're like, oh, it's just because I'm getting older, that's a load of crap. Okay. That's not why you're feeling this way. It's because of the fiat food. And so I started, then I kept reading about this ketogenic diet and I looked into it and there's actually a lot of research that was on the books at that time backing it up, but it's something I never had heard of ever in my medical school training or, or in any of the medical journals that I read faithfully every day, keeping up with my continuing medical education. It never, never was mentioned. And so I thought, well, I'll try that. And oh man, I started to lose weight like crazy. A1C went back to normal. My heartburn, which had been severe for years, got 80% better. And then I kept reading about this carnivore diet. And when I adopted that, heartburn gone, dandruff gone, toenail fungus gone, chronic knee pain from an old injury gone. And so it's like magic, but it's not magic. It's physiology. And you said something that's very important that everybody understand, because uh, many times when you start talking about diet and ancestrally appropriate diets, people will call you a Luddite. Like, oh, you, you know, we're, we're, we live in a modern world now. Well, here's the difference. When it comes to technology, I, I've got the latest iPhone. Okay. I've got, I've got a driver assisted technology on my truck. I, I love technology. I'm in no way a Luddite. But when it comes to what you put in your mouth, you have to understand that you are an ancient species. Okay, you have not evolved in any meaningful way in the last hundred thousand years. This is known. This is not debatable. Uh, and when you start reading in anthropology, which my, my research forced me to do in paleoanthropology, you realize very quickly that human beings are an ancient species. You cannot eat a modern diet and expect good health. That's not the way it works. So when it comes to your technology, yes, have all the latest technology. Utilize it, use it to your advantage, but you cannot use modern technology to feed yourself. That never works. There will always be a problem with that because it's a, it's an evolutionary mismatch. Maybe in another hundred thousand years, we'll be able to eat a fiat food and be totally healthy and fine with that. But currently, absolutely not. There's no human on the planet that won't manifest some sort of disease process. If you feel, if you, if you ingest too much highly processed modern food, that's just the truth of the biological matter.
The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, absolutely. I think your story is a very common one. I, uh, a lot of people get to feel this idea that, oh, I'm just getting old, and then you start cutting down the food, fiat food, and then, oh, well, I'm getting young. Personally, for me, I was younger in my 30s than I was in my 20s. Absolutely. In my 20s, I was mostly overweight, out of shape, and just always saying, you know, I'm going to get to the gym. Eventually, I'm going to get to the gym. And once I get to the gym, I'm going to fix things up. And then in my 30s, I started doing things that I never thought I was capable of. I never imagined myself as being athletic. And yet in my, in my 30s, I was in far better shape. I was stronger, faster having so much more uh, fun in life just because I was eating so much better. And it's, yes. um, it, it, it just continues to get better. The, the, the longer you do it, the more you're able to push yourself physically, the more strength you accumulate and the more stamina you have. And it's, it's almost like you're reversing aging. And, and, and for me, I started, I started cutting out the fiat food at around 28. And it's, that's now 15 years ago. And it was just continuous improvement because I, it was like an addiction where people, you know, they, <laughs> they get off the wagon and then it just, you keep adding more and more of the drug and you keep taking more and more doses. For me, it was like that, but it was the opposite. I kept on cutting down on bad food. And then the more that I cut down, the better I felt. And then seven years into that, I finally came across carnivore and I've been carnivore for eight years now. And it's just absolutely amazing that there's no going back from this. I mean, maybe I'll occasionally have a tiny little bit of a cheat, but it makes me feel terrible. And it just reminds me why I can't go off this. I mean, it's just an entirely different life. And there's no way that I would want to go back to living that life. I, I enjoy life way too much being healthy that there's nothing. And this is what I always tell people. I've tried all of the stuff that's in the supermarket. I've been to fine restaurants. There's absolutely nothing that they can offer me that tastes as good as I feel when I go a whole month without eating any plant food. It's just incomparable. There's nothing that compares. Nothing you can eat from the supermarket can give you as much fun. I can make you feel as good as how good you feel when you're eating well. Oh, I totally agree. And, and I think that's one thing that 
so many people see the mainstream narrative that, oh, red meat is unhealthy, it'll cause cancer, it'll cause heart disease. It'll, it, there are even people out there saying that red meat will cause diabetes. And it's it, when you start actually looking at that research, which the average, average person doesn't have the time or education to be able to do, they can't read that study, but I can. And so that's many of my YouTube videos are just me explaining why this study saying that red meat causes di- type 2 diabetes is foolishness. It's, it's, it's based on no known physiological pathways. It's based on observational research, which can never show causation or, or imply, so basically prove that one thing caused another thing. All observational research can do is show a possible association between two things. And in many cases, the, the association that they're talking about is so weak that it should be considered background noise. But since the most of the researchers believe in their heart of hearts that a plant-based diet is the best diet, is the healthiest diet, is the diet that will save the planet, their preconceived notions are able to slip into this observational research results. And therefore, they see a hazard ratio of 1.4. And, and instead of them going, well, crap, that's background noise, I can't, they'll, they'll actually publish a paper with a hazard ratio of 1.4 being the home run that they think they've hit in that research study. And it's like anybody who understands statistics and epidemiology knows that a hazard ratio of less than two is literally background noise. It doesn't, it doesn't even imply a real association. But yet that much of the research showing, proving that red meat causes colon cancer or heart disease or diabetes or whatever there's the, the, the cause du jour is today, it, it's foolishness. It, it, it does in no way proves that. So let me be very clear to the listeners. There is no research on planet Earth that shows that red meat causes colon cancer. There is no research on Earth that shows that red meat causes heart disease or causes type 2 diabetes or causes any other negative health outcome. There is no research at PubMed.gov or any other website that, that compiles research, that there's no study there that, that says, oh, yep, that's the smoking gun right there. Red meat causes the following thing. There is no such research, but yet they'll, they'll say, oh, new research shows. But when you start to look into that, the narrative quickly falls apart because in many cases, organizations like the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, have been effectively bought off by big food and big pharma manufacturers. They, they receive millions of dollars a year in donations from these multinational corporations. And so when, when your paycheck depends on you understanding something or not understanding something, it's very easy not to understand that thing. And I think that's what's going on with the majority of the, the thought leaders in medicine and nutrition. But then that trickles down to the average doctor, like I used to be, who's not really paying attention. We're just reading our medical journals, reading our nutrition journals, and just saying, okay, well, that's the state of the art. Then that's what I'm going to recommend to my patients. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's very nefarious how, it's, how it works, how it's set up. And a lot of people want to claim a conspiracy, but I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just the way human nature works when you set up modern society in such a way uh, in which you, you know better than I that if you base a modern society on fiat currency, you, you wind up with all these, these narratives and all of these connections that shouldn't exist, but they exist because of the fiat currency. And that's going to 
leave you with fiat food. And, and that fiat food's going to be trumpeted. Oh, this is it. This is the new thing. Oh, new from Kellogg's. Oh, new from, you know. And so we wind up just following this narrative blindly when, in fact, there's not a shred of research proving that our ancestrally appropriate food, which is meat, is bad for us. There is no research whatsoever. And there's also no long-term research showing that this new thing from Kellogg's or this new thing from Kraft Heinz or Mondelez is actually good for us long-term. But we just say, well, it's on TV. It must be fine. Yeah. One thing that I say in the fiat standard, I think the way that I uh, like to understand fiat science and the way that I like to explain it to people is that fiat science is all about who gets to set the null hypothesis and the burden of proof. And so the way that it works is that the null hypothesis is that all of this heavily industrial, uh, highly processed food is good for you and meat is bad for you. And then the burden of proof has to be absolutely extraordinary to a level wherein you get fired and lose your job and don't get any more research funding if you try to disprove either of those things. So you could publish a paper in which you say, well, look, we gave people a lot of meat and they were fine. And we don't see colon cancer. We don't see diabetes. We don't see uh, blood glucose uh, problems. And then you publish that paper, but so what? That paper isn't going to make it into CNN headlines. It isn't going to make it into Harvard press releases. It isn't going to make it into the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association. None of those people are going to take any of this because, again, null hypothesis is that this stuff is bad and the burden of proof is just too high. So they'll always find something wrong with it. So they'll tell you, well, but that wasn't a reputable journal. Well, that wasn't a great university. It's some university somewhere in the middle of the country. It's not Harvard. It's not Stanford. It's not uh, Yale or whatever. So you can't really trust those scientists much. There's always something. Or it was an observational study, but it wasn't really a randomized control trial. It wasn't a big enough sample. doesn't matter what it is. There's always going to be something that as long as you're going against the null hypothesis, then something is wrong with your study. On the other hand, with the studies that show you that Kellogg's heavily processed garbage is bad for you, same thing happens. And the studies that show you that that stuff is good for you, it's the opposite. It's just they're pushing at an open door. It's It only takes one small study to look at a random sampling of people who have eaten things, take self-reported data on what they say they've eaten, and then see, look, people who have eaten this stuff, there's no evidence for it. I've seen some of the studies on high fructose corn syrup, for instance, yeah, I mean, they, they just design the study in a way where it's almost impossible to pick up any kind of effect. And then they trumpet that study left and right. And then they tell you, see, there is no evidence. This is, uh, you're, you're a quack scientist. You're, 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 you're peddling in conspiracy theories if you're saying that this wholesome industrial garbage that we are feeding people is bad for them. And yeah. for that reason, I mean, I'm, I personally, I've noticed an enormous improvement in my health when I quit using uh, PubMed and when I stopped reading academic journals. And I highly recommend it. I think uh, <laughs> there's there, there's an enormous amount of danger in getting going down that rabbit hole where you're reading scientific studies. I know it's not quite that bad because if you actually read the studies, you find that there's a lot of very reasonable conclusions that are arrived at. But you know, just to be on the safe side. <laughs> 
I, I wouldn't recommend it because it's coming from all these universities and scientists that are funded. So I tell people it, the, the real scientific method is not to go around and read what uh, American universities funded by industrial uh, food manufacturers are publishing. The real scientific method is go and experiment on yourself. If you think meat causes diabetes, go get a blood glucose monitor, eat a giant ribeye, and measure your blood glucose after it. Now, then after a few hours, go and eat uh, Twinkies, cereal, whatever uh, other things you have that have high sugar, and then see what your blood sugar looks like after that. And that, for me, is far more scientific than anything you could read in an article, because that's your body, and you're experimenting on your body. And it's entirely possible for you to experiment on something this simple. You don't even need a glucose monitor. You can just do a week of meat only, and then a week of Twinkies only, and do a week of kale only, and a week of broccoli only, or whatever it is, and see how you feel. But you know, most people are addicted to sugar, so of course they can't take that step, and then they keep searching PubMed in order to try and find something that will rationalize for them their sugar addiction. Yep. And sugar addiction is a very real thing. And it's not just sugar addiction. Um, if, if you haven't studied nutrition, then you, you might not know the, what I'm about to say. But starchy vegetables, right? Like uh, underground tubers. People say, oh, there's no sugar in that. It's just starch. And they don't know that starch is just long chains of sugar. You have an enzyme in your mouth called amylase. And when you're chewing up the potato, the sweet potato, the bread, you're literally breaking down the starch into sugar in your mouth before you ever swallow it. And so, so many people who don't focus on nutrition like I do, they don't know that. And they don't have time to be researching that stuff. They just know that they're getting fatter and more, more diabetic, and they're not sure why. And so, now the narr new narrative is, oh, it Type 2 diabetes is genetic. Obesity is genetic. There's nothing you can do about it except take these pharmaceutical solutions. Uh, and so, again, back to the, the, the fiat economy, where that kind of terrible choice, that's your only choice, is to take that and to pay that money. But people don't have time for that. People are, you know, you're a truck driver. You're a, a, an investor. You don't have time to be looking at all this stuff. And so what I try to do with my YouTube channel is break apart that research so they don't have to go to PubMed and look it up and try to, you know, look, Google all the words to figure out what it means. And then I very early when I first discovered this, I was like, how am I going to help doctors? And how am I going to help, you know, the, the USDA, they're wrong. How am I going to change that? And it occurred to me very quickly, dude, there are so many vile incentives, right? Perverse incentives at the top. You're not going to change those people's mind. So I thought, I'm just going to reach out to regular people and say, here's why that research is wrong. So the next thing I would encourage you to do is just what you said, is just try 90 days of beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. Just do that for 90 days. I've already explained to you, it's not going to cause heart disease or colon cancer or type 2 diabetes. Those are not true narratives. Those are false narratives. So don't worry about any of that. Human beings have been eating meat just as long as we've been breathing air and drinking water. Literally, for just as many years, we've been eating lots of fatty meat. So for the next 90 days, I want you to eat only beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. And at the end of that 90 days, you can judge. Do I feel better? Do I look better? Am I thinking clearer? If so, you have your answer. For you personally, keep doing that, right? And so that, that 
is has, has helped so many early adapters that now I really feel like when it comes to a proper human diet, we're past the early adapter phase. I think we're start, entering the early majority phase of adoption. And because, I mean, there are millions of people around the world now who are either eating a carnivore diet full time or they're getting ready. Uh, January's World Carnivore Month, and they're getting ready to try 30 days, if not 90 days, of a carnivore diet just to see if all the hype is true or not. And I think they'll be very pleasantly surprised to find out that the hype is true. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I can't speak highly enough of my experience. It's been eight years, and I, I I cannot go back. It's absolutely fascinating how different it is, and I agree with you. I think the number of people that are getting in on this is enormous. I I remember fifteen years ago when I first started realizing this. I I mean, for me, it's just uh, I was never much of a obsessive about health. But as soon as I started hearing people telling me things like, yeah, just cut down on carbs and you'll lose weight. So I started trying it. And I was always scientific about it in the sense of just trying it out. So I started off just by cutting out extra bread, eating, you know, the bread that they put in the restaurant before you eat your meal. And I cut out soda. That was how it started for me. And then I immediately felt so much better that, as I was saying earlier, it's like a drug that I just kept needing to what else can I cut out? Maybe I could take out all bread. Maybe I could take out all uh, corn. And then the more things that I took out, the better that I felt. And I remember there was a sense of revelation as if me and a bunch, and at that time, you know, 2008, there was a lot fewer people on the internet that were into this kind of stuff. And I thought, yeah, these few weirdos on the internet, they are going to revolutionize science because as soon as the scientists find out about this. Clearly, everything is going to be revolutionized. Everything is going to be different. But here we are 15 years later, and Harvard is still publishing the same nonsense that they used mm -hmm. to publish 15 years ago. But the world has changed drastically. I think pretty much everybody has heard about low carb at this point. Everybody has heard of the idea that if you cut down carbs, you lose weight. And the people who don't do it are sort of either in denial about it or they're trying to rationalize it or they think they have time or they think they can do it. But it's very different than what it was 15 years ago. When 15 years ago, when you'd mentioned something like this, people would just think, you must be absolutely crazy. Now they realize, okay, maybe you're crazy, but at least it works. So th there yep. is definitely a growing awareness of it. And, it's, and as you said, it's a global phenomenon all over the world. So somebody like Tim Noakes in South Africa has has revolutionized health in South Africa. Millions of people are in his Facebook groups and, you know, well, not necessarily his, but in South Africa in particular, it's, it's hugely popular and you see it all over your, all over the world. People are getting into it. But again, institutions, the establishment, the universities, they're the last to get the memo. And that yep. really only makes sense once you start looking at it from my perspective in the fiat standard, which is, yep. These institutions don't function as as people think they do. They are not out there looking for truth. They are out there handing down edicts from their financiers to you to tell you what suits their sponsors. They're not out there to figure out how to cure diabetes. They're out there figuring out how to optimize making money out of diabetes. Yeah. And we actually see multiple examples of this in history. I'm by no means a historian, but I am an avid uh, fan of, of of history, you see this multiple times where 
a new discovery. And in this case, a proper human diet, I think what we're doing is rediscovering it because we forgot it. But it still feels like a new discovery to most people. And as that spreads by word of mouth, it it is absolutely going to cut into the profits of the big food corporations and the big pharmaceutical corporations. Absolutely. And so they're going to fight against that. And what we see in history is when a new discovery takes hold and word of mouth, it's just spreading like crazy. The, the people in control, the powers that be, eventually they have two choices. You either have to just step away from the paradigm and, and say, yeah, we, we've always known low carb was the way. So that's one option that the American Diabetes Association, they might opt for that and say, oh, yeah, we've known for years that low carb, keto, carnivore, that's the answer. If you have type 2 diabetes, we thought you guys knew that, too. We've been saying that for years. Uh, or they'll try to enforce it. So it's either enforcement or denial. That's what's ultimately going to come from Harvard School of Public Health and Tufts University School of Nutrition, that's what they'll ultimately be forced. They'll have two choices. Either you you can try to regulate and enforce the diet, and especially in the United States, I don't think that'll go very well uh, because a lot of people believe that we have uh, God-given rights that you cannot take away, uh, even at the force of a gun. But they, so I predict that the, the, the big majority of these authoritative bodies will at some point just, they're already quietly stepping away from statements such as eating saturated fat is bad for you, eating cholesterol is bad for you. The, the American Heart Association has already stepped away from those. They don't say that anymore. Uh, but at some point, they're going to be forced with just this overwhelming majority of the general population who laugh at them when they come out with a new study saying, oh, red meat will cause you to have whatever fill-in-the-blank malady. They're just like... And people will chuckle at that. And at that point, as a thought leader, you've got two choices. You can either go to your federal government and say, we've got to enforce this on people, or you can quietly step away from it and act like that was never your position to begin with. I think we've seen that to some degree with the uh, recent pandemic that we all had to suffer through. And now people are denying, oh, I never said that we should you know, lockdown or whatever. I, I never said that. And then obviously you see all the clips on Twitter, a video of them literally saying that, right? And so uh, I think a lot of the authorities have lost face. I think your point is also valid because in the in the ivory tower, in the halls of those institutions, those people haven't lost any face whatsoever. But in the eyes of the of the people, of the majority, especially of, of the people who pay attention, they've lost all authority. Nobody cares what they say at all now because they were egregiously wrong. And then they denied ever having said that. And I think that's where nutrition organizations are going to have to, at, at some point, choose. Either we try to get the government to force down and crack down and enforce this this plant-based diet, or we just step away from it and say, yeah, we never really believed in a plant-based diet anyway. What do you think is going to happen, Safe? I think I, I have a third option for you, which I okay. think is probably more likely. I, uh, you know, it's been 15 years since I've started this of people making fun of those people on Twitter. I've made fun of fat nutritionists for many, many years on Twitter. I've had one of them uh, threaten to uh, call my university and uh, get me fired back when I taught at the university. I remember a funny story. So this is Lebanon and Lebanon is not like the US with cancel culture. Right. So this 
fat nutritionist tagged my university and said, can you believe this guy's being, and, and, and she said, I'm being sexist, although I didn't even mention anything about her gender in the whole thing, but she said, I'm being sexist. And how can you hire somebody sexist like that? And in my, you know, the, the, the lady who runs the Twitter account for my university, I ran into her on campus one day and she was like, that stupid lady one day was trying to tell me to f- get you fired. And I, all I wanted to do was to join in with you and tell her to shut up. But so it was, a, it, it was different <laughs> than how it would have gone in the US. I think I, I'd have probably been lynched in the US, but that was the good thing about being in a place like Lebanon. But, um, I think, yeah, to go back to your, the point, they have been getting mocked and they have been getting fatter and their recommendations have not been working. But the result of this is that they just have to keep hiring uh, more shameless, sociopathic, uh, careerist people who just absolutely don't care whatsoever about anything except for their paycheck. And so that's just going to mean uh, more mendacity and more uh, in-your-face clinging on to the consensus view that they want to propagate. And I think they might just take that to the grave institutionally. I think there is a third possibility, which is that these institutions just go bankrupt as they um, disappear into irrelevancy and they don't change track because changing track requires a fundamental retooling of the institutional structure of these things from being mechanisms of propagating state propaganda and corporate propaganda to being places of learning and education and seeking truth. And they're just not cut out for that, that there's no mechanism for how do we do that. And I've seen this, what prepared me for seeing this in nutrition and what made me a little less surprised seeing it in nutrition was that I came at this from economics uh, around the same time or about a year or so before I started getting uh, woke on nutrition, if you want, I was already becoming very awake on the catastrophe that is modern economics and how it is all a scam. And that's a scam that has been much more transparent for a much longer time. So back in the 1970s, there wasn't as much awareness of the problems of the modern diet back in the 1970s, because back in the 1970s, when the dietary guidelines were beginning to become so bad, Even the biggest skeptics did not expect that it would be this disastrous. Nobody in the 1970s thought that we're going to get to these levels of obesity that we have today. So in the 1970s, they weren't as discredited in the nutrition schools, but they were pretty discredited in economics. In the 1970s, Keynesian economics was completely irreversibly destroyed in terms of its credibility because the whole edifice rests on the idea that you can't have inflation and unemployment at the same time. And then in the 1970s, you get high inflation and high unemployment. So you'd think by the 1980s, this would lead to a complete revamping of American education and global education, not just American, of course, but it didn't. And here we are 50, 60 years later, they're still teaching the same garbage. So they could keep going with this for a very long time with nutrition, I think. But I think the difference is that perhaps, I mean, the, the cause for optimism is that this world is going bankrupt. And that's that's the fiat problem. Yep. Government bonds are getting destroyed. The fiat currencies are getting destroyed in terms of their real value. And so the people that are feeding this system are unable to continue to feed the scientists who scientists between quotation marks, they're unable to 
eat properly anymore. You, it, it's not a lucrative career anymore to be a university professor repeating this nonsense. If you get out of it, I mean, I think, you know, uh, they like to mock nutrition and health uh, influencers who are online, but that's really just seething and coping because the reality is if you've got a YouTube channel and you're telling people to cut down on carbs, you are saving so many more lives than all of these nutrition professors that are out there rationalizing while actually high fructose corn syrup is not bad for you and you'll be all right if you eat it. I mean, there's, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot less money to be made there because you're making a lot less impact. And so it's the difference between a grassroots movement versus an astroturf movement. And the astroturf movement is, in my opinion, withering away and dying because there's an infinite number of talentless, soulless, sociopathic, mendacious people who are willing to repeat these lies and uh, get these jobs. And so, it's not easy. It's not like you're going to be getting that job at Harvard and then you just need to turn up and get paid. You need to spend all day and all night doing academic research that is extremely exhausting in order to prove yourself worthy of this job. So it's highly competitive and it takes a lot of effort and there's just not that much money left in that world. Whereas in the internet economy where truth matters, in, in the real scientific environment of YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, where you can go out and you can tell people whatever you want, but people are going to comment and they're going to say, I followed this guy and I didn't lose weight. I followed that guy and I did lose weight. Yep. In that actual scientific environment, there is there is feedback from the market. And so you have to do, deliver results. And in that world, there's room for growth because the better you are, the more clients you get, the more followers you get, the more valuable your advice is. And that's why I think it's a little different between economics and nutrition because of the immediate feedback that people get. Because I actually, uh, I'll confess that I've been a student, an armchair student of Austrian economics, of von Mises, of Murray Rothbard. I've been reading that stuff since the late 90s, full believer uh, in Austrian economics. But so what? Uh, me having that knowledge didn't make me any richer. It didn't make me any more financially resilient or anti-fragile, right? Because the system hadn't changed. But with nutrition, I think it's a little different. And I think that this is going to come to a head much, much quicker than it did in economics because somebody can be like, well, this Dr. Barry, this redneck, I don't know. I mean, but I like meat and eggs. So I'm just going to try this for 90 days. And at the end of that 90 days, they have measurable objective proof in the mirror with the tape measure. If they get their labs checked, it's it's measurable and knowable and it's immediate, right? And so that that guy, once he does 90 days of carnivore, once that lady does 90 days of carnivore, it's over for mainstream nutrition and for, for Tufts School of Nutrition and Harvard School of Public Health. They will never listen to them again. Right. Uh, and so yeah, I think that's the way it may be different in the way the way that it, it might come to where they've got to make this this choice. You either enforce it, enforce the plant based diet or you shut up about it because literally nobody believes you. And even though I didn't believe in, in Keynesian economics anymore, it really didn't change my world. Does that make sense? It does, but I think uh, it did up until Bitcoin came about. Bitcoin is yes. the way that yes. fixes this. It's really the way that it's uh, 
that it allows that feedback to be immediate. Because here we are, if you hold Bitcoin, you're outperforming pretty much everybody in fiat markets. And so all of these people who went to Harvard, all of these big shot hedge fund managers that are on CNBC every day and formulating all these incredibly sophisticated theories about how the Fed is going to do this and that and why they should do this and shouldn't do that and why you should put your money here and put your money there. I mean, all of these people are underperforming Bitcoin. You know, even at the bottom of a Bitcoin crash, even one year ago when Bitcoin was around $16,000, it was still on a five-year basis, on a six-year basis, on a seven-year basis, it still had massively outperformed pretty much everything else. And so at this point, there's it's it's becoming very similar to the nutrition argument where it is an individual decision. I agree with you. Before that, uh, a lot of people would go down the Austrian economics rabbit hole. And then the only actionable conclusion is we should elect somebody like Ron Paul who will reinstate the gold standard and then we'll have a functioning economy and we'll have a, a, a monetary system that is not designed to rob us. But there was no way that you- Yeah, full disclosure, I voted for Ron Paul. Awesome. <laughs> there was, but there was no actionable way for you to make that individually in a way that fixes you because you couldn't just go on a gold standard on your own. The banks, you, you can't just not use banks. You have to use the banking system. But now there is. You can opt out. You can use Bitcoin. And Bitcoin, I mean, the beautiful thing about it is that it flies in the face of all of their theories exactly like meat flies in the face of all of their nutrition theories. It's out there saying, nope, you don't need the money supply to increase. Nope, deflation is not bad. If the prices go down, that's a good thing. Bitcoiners have been suffering from deflation for the past 15 years, and it has been absolutely glorious. And it, there's nothing better than it. Everything just keeps getting cheaper in Bitcoin. I mean, people talk, complain about uh, food prices going up. They're not going up if you're holding Bitcoin. House prices are not going up if you're holding Bitcoin. And the alternative to holding Bitcoin continues to be to play the fiat circus, and that's just a losing game. Nobody's able to beat inflation in the long run. Even all of these hotshot hedge fund managers who spend all of their time and hire all these PhDs, have all these amazing computers and all these models trying to figure it out. And then you look at what they return for the clients at the end of the year, 4%, 7%, 8%. They make their money off of their commissions. The only way to beat the fiat system is to sell people the illusion that you can beat the fiat system and then have them pay you 2 and 20, as they call it, 20% of returns and 2% of assets under management. That's the way to do it. All of these people don't beat inflation and they just beat you, basically. And that's how it works. And Bitcoin is your way out. So that's why Bitcoiners... We love, we, we, you know, the same way that um, carnivores <laughs> mock the nutritionists on uh, Twitter, the Bitcoiners mock the economists on Twitter. All these very fancy theories and models, 7% return at the end of the year, while Bitcoiners make 150% or something like that. Yeah. While and I think Bitcoin, uh, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but I think Bitcoin kind of it pulls back the curtain on the parasitical nature of the relationship of a financial manager or consultant, what they say they're providing versus what's actually happening in that relationship. It, it reveals it to be quite parasitic. And I think that uh, carn the carnivore diet also pulls back the curtain and shows that the relationship that patients have with their nutritionist or dietitian or their doctor in many cases is purely parasitical. The doctor or the dietitian is benefiting 
financially from the relationship with the patient, but the patient's not really benefiting at all. They're propping up the pharmaceutical model of healthcare with their payments, but they're not really benefiting. And I think a lot of people, when they see that parasitical nature of the of the relationship, they're like, okay, so if if in economics, if the all the relationships are parasitical, and in nutrition, all the relationships are parasitical, what what else? And I think it, it naturally awakens, especially a, a meat-fed mind that's able to, to discern and think about such things. Then you start asking questions like, I wonder what other parasitical relationships I'm a part of where I'm not the parasite. I'm the host that's getting its blood sucked out. I wonder what other things in my life I need to correct as well. And I think that's a very healthy position to be in. Absolutely. And that's that's why the Bitcoin rabbit hole is so engrossing and consuming because people get into it and they get uh it's just an endless discovery of lies that you've been fed by fiat authorities because in fiat society truth is not something that emerges through open inquiry reality is essentially enforced top down by fiat and so climate science is another major one Foreign policy and all of the lies associated with foreign policy is another major one. People think the U.S. needs all of these military bases and needs to be financing all of these countries all over the world for American security when it's really the other way around. It's, it, this is what's causing all of the problems for the U.S. rather than uh, helping them. And again, it's another example where you might think that you are the a parasite and you're the beneficiary of this relationship. But in reality, you're the host. You're not the one who's benefiting from it. Um, uh, Americans take pride in the idea. Look, we've got all these bases all over the world. Yeah, you're the, just paying for all of that stuff and winning enemies and fighting wars that you have no business fighting and having your family members and your neighbors uh, blown off in remote parts of the world for no good reason whatsoever. Yep, I totally agree. And I think there, there are many arenas of modern life where we think that our relationship with some institution is uh, symbiotic. We both benefit. But then when you, when you pull back that curtain and you look at it with the fresh eyes of a carnivore, you immediately see, no, that's not it at all. And it's, it's somewhat embarrassing for me when I look back at, at the way I thought about the world, knowing about Austrian economics for all these years. Right, but never did it occur to me to to ask that question. Me, this educated doctor who I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be an intellectual and a thinker. It never occurred to me to go, huh? They got economics totally wrong. But it never occurred to me maybe we got nutrition totally wrong until I became severely obese and pre diabetic. Then it, you know, when it became personal, that's when I started looking into it. But you would you would have thought I would have questioned everything at that moment. When I, when I read Rothbard, I'm like, oh my God, this, this is important. This is a big deal. But it never occurred to me that if that paradigm was wrong, maybe I believe other paradigms. Maybe I operate under other paradigms that are exactly wrong. But it never occurred to me to ask that question until I became metabolically ill myself. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's got to take their journey and take the route that is meant for them. And I think there's there's value in the detours that you take because you learn along the way. You have to get really fat in order to uh, appreciate this. I, I believe it's true in my case. Um, <laughs> at least, yeah. you know, I, I console myself by saying that is the case. <laughs> and I think it's important to say 
safe that to, to all of, of the investors who listen to you and on Twitter and YouTube and other places, this is not just about being fat. And because I'm sure there are guys out there like, well, I'm not fat. I'm not diabetic. So this doesn't apply to me. If you want to be on top of your game, then your mental health, your mental acuity, your mental quickness absolutely are vital in, in on the financial battlefield or whatever battlefield that you, you fight on daily. And when you're it, driving, even. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, every single thing you do in life, the more mentally aware, mentally acute, mentally alert, the less mentally foggy you are, the better decisions you're going to make. And the, the more that's going to just feed into your cornucopia of wealth, not just financial wealth, but, but personal relationships, financial wealth, whatever, whatever arena that you're in, you're going to do better in that arena. If your brain is firing on all its cylinders, all its neurons. If, and so uh, anybody who says, Oh, I'm skinny and I'm not, you know, I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have diabetes. So this doesn't apply to me. I would beg to differ with you. And I would, I would still highly encourage you to do 90 days of carnivore and see just how much your mental health improves, uh, as well as your physical health as well. Absolutely. I think we, we, we focus a little too much on the obesity aspect because it's funny and it's good for memes, but it's a lot more than just obesity. I, I fully agree with you. The, the mental change that it does, the amount of productivity. I've, I wrote three books uh, since going carnivore. I am 100% certain I would not have been able to write half of these books or a third of these books if I had remained on an industrial waste diet as I was before. The amount of increase in productivity that I've had, the level of focus that I have is just completely alien to anything that I had experienced before. It's amazing. I, 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 have so, I, you know, I have so much more work to do and I get through it so much faster with so much more focus because my brain is working. I mean, it's not like, uh, for me, it's not like I am taking um, performance-enhancing drug in the form of meat. For me, this is what a human brain should be like. And when I was not eating like this, I was debilitating myself. I was making myself a lot slower and a lot dumber every day. And it hurt my productivity. It hurt my happiness. It hurt my ability to communicate with people. It hurt my ability to have normal relationships with people. Everything is compromised. And you will only understand what I'm talking about if you try it, if you try the two things and you make the difference uh, and, and you observe the difference for yourself. Because otherwise, this just sounds like weird cult people talking about how joining this cult um, made them feel better. But, you know, the difference between a uh, cult and um, something that actually works, you can only determine it if you actually try it and see for yourself. Yep. And I think it's very important to differentiate the two things because there are people on Twitter who will say, well, humans have eaten, been eating plants for, you know, thousands of years since, since we've been a species. And that's absolutely true. Uh, but when you really start to dig into the anthropology and the archaeology, you'll find that plants are a fallback food or a poverty food, right? If we have access to fatty meat, that is always what we go after. That is always what we eat the most of. Uh, in many cases, in paleoanthropological studies, humans are actually super carnivores ingesting more meat than foxes and wolves. Uh, we, we actually were eating the carnivores that ate the herbivores. And so in many cases, humans were not only eating the herbivores, just the, 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 
the animals that eat grass. We were also eating the carnivores as well, the bears and the foxes and the, and the, the wolves. And so it's very important to say, yes, humans have always eaten plants. Absolutely. But then when we, when we turn to archaeology, we see multiple examples where emperors and dictators always fed their slaves and prisoners a plant-based diet without exception. There's not a single recorded instance of a dictator or an emperor or a king saying, feed all this unhealthy meat to the prisoners, the prisoners of war, the slaves. That never happens, okay, because the, they knew the, the meat is the best food for humans. And so all slaves and prisoners wound up eating a plant-based diet. They wound up eating the wheat and the, the beans and the rice. And so a few years back, there was a movie called The Game Changers that was uh, produced uh, and put out by people who believe in their heart of hearts that a plant-based diet is the healthiest diet for humans. And they actually put up gladiators from the Roman times as an example of how uh, superstars, celebrities, right, superheroes, they ate beans and rice. And, but what they didn't understand because of their deficiency in, in, in knowledge was that gladiators, although they are, you know, put up in modern Western society as a superhero, they were slaves and prisoners of war. They, they literally had no value in Roman society whatsoever. They were fed the cheapest diet possible that would keep them from starving to death. In many cases, they wanted to make them fatter because then when they were injured by a blade, that layer of fat would keep them alive. They would live through that. And so they could fight another day. They were never given meat. They were given gruel, beans and rice and wheat, ground up grains and seeds. That's what they lived on. Not because that made them the superhero gladiator like Russell Crowe. They were fed that because they were the dregs of society who were literally made to perform for everybody else and, and risk their life in the performance. They were not superheroes. They were slaves, prisoners of war, and prisoners. And so they, they were fed a grain-based diet, not because it improved their performance, but because it was the cheapest diet they could possibly feed them. It was a great poverty food to keep them from starving to death, but at the same time, keep them alive, alive long enough so that they could perform another time or two before they met their end. Yeah, and I think uh, one misconception here is that uh, people sometimes look at athletes and they think, well, they eat this stuff or the gladiators, they eat this stuff. But I mean, these people are usually genetic freaks, they're genetic lottery winners. And so they can get away with this stuff in the short run that you cannot get away with. It'll catch up with them eventually. But if you're a gladiator, it'll probably someone's blade or someone or some lion is going to catch up with you before uh, hypertension. Yeah. And metabolic disease catches up with you. But with modern athletes, you see this quite often. Uh, they retire, and then as they get older, they their health deteriorates very quickly. So what you can get away with as a 25-year-old at the peak of your powers in the top 0.0001% of the world in terms of your strength and fitness is not the guide that everybody else should follow. I think this is, um, and, and in fact, if you see it with the Game Changers movie, most of these athletes are pretty much done now. They're, most yes. of their careers are finished. So Cam Newton, he went from being one of the best players in the NFL to being completely washed up at this point. I, I presume yep. I don't really follow the NFL, but I, I looked at a chart following these players and there haven't been that many uh, great results for vegan athletes uh, or ever, really. 
We've got Matthew Lisiak here, who's uh, co-authored, or I should say authored, Fiat Food. I wrote a couple of chapters in that book. He read the Fiat Standard the chapter on food. He thought that it was crazy, and he set out to research it to make sure that I wasn't just um, making stuff up. And surprise, surprise, he concluded that I wasn't just making stuff up. It really, we do live in a crazy, insane world. And he wrote a whole book about it. So, Matthew, what do you make of this discussion, and uh, what questions do you have for Ken? I find this discussion fantastic. Ken, one of the questions I have is, what was the reaction of your colleagues in the field? Because in my research, it would indicate that you're against a remarkable tide inside of your industry. So how did that, how did this all reconcile? So it, it, it's still in the process of reconciliation as we speak. There are still doctors who I went to medical school with or, or practice with who still won't speak to me to this day. But one of the things I am noticing in the ketogenic and the low-carb community is that there is a mass immigration of primary care doctors, of nurse practitioners, and of physicians' assistants, of pharmacists, of nurses who are like, yes, the keto or carnivore is the way. Uh, I'm seeing a mass migration, and and I just uh, a, a month ago I received this text message from a doctor who I used to work in the emergency department with years ago, when I was first experimenting with keto, and and his his uh, opinion back then was that it was foolish, that was dangerous, you shouldn't mess with that, and then when I started recommending it to patients, he basically pulled away from me professionally. He's like, I can't even associate with that. He just texted me the other night, and he said. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that I developed obesity and type 2 diabetes. I finally started watching your YouTube videos, and I want you to know now I've lost 40 pounds and I've reversed my A1C back to normal. And now he is 100% on board with a, with a carnivore diet. He recommends it to every patient he sees who suffers from type 2 diabetes or hypertension or metabolic syndrome or fatty liver uh, or obesity. He says you need to go carnivore. And so this is a, and if you had told me one day before he texts me, hey, you know, you're going to get a text from so-and-so and he's going to say you were right all along. I would have been like, no, he's too hard headed because uh, sometimes people compare doctors to mountain lions. Like we, it's hard to hurt us because we all have our own beliefs and our own notions and we don't like being told what to do. And I would have never have guessed that this guy, would come out of the woodwork and say, dude, you were right the whole time. I was wrong. I've used your YouTube videos to reverse my type 2 diabetes. And and so I, I still get pushback, no doubt, especially on Twitter from the plant-based cardiologists and other people. I've been visited by the Tennessee State Medical Board several times. I've had slaps on the wrist several times from them. And I consider that a badge of honor. I'm not ashamed of that at all. I think that as time goes on, as and that's that's where I think it, it's also different from the economic standpoint of Austrian economics, is that when you get enough doctors on board with a proper human diet, you get enough nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, pharmacists, physical therapists, nurses, the, it hamstrings the authoritative bodies because it, uh, I have many nurses who practice at a large hospital and they're in my private group and they're part of the proper human diet movement. And so they'll, as they're say, it's a nurse, a post-op nurse. And she's like, okay, here's your take home checklist. And they go through all the checklists and they're like, you should eat a plant-based diet and minimize saturated fat. Okay. Check. And then when they get done, 
doing what they are bound to do by their employer. Then they hand the patient either a business card or a little pamphlet that they've made themselves at home. And they say, now I had to tell you all that stuff because my employer requires it. But when you get home, I want you to look up these YouTube channels or this this Twitter account or this. I want you to go and look this up. They're undermining the mainstream authority on a daily basis with with, you know, with that particular nurse with 10 patients every single day of her career. She's handing out this pamphlet saying what I just told you is a bunch of bunk. I had to say that because I'll get fired if I don't. When you get home, look this up. And so I think social media is giving an outlet to people where, you know, back in, in, in the early days of Austrian economics, there was no internet. And so you had to either write a paper, get an article published or do something like that to get any traction whatsoever. Now people with their, their inkjet printer at home and with the internet, they can be like, yeah, all that's foolishness. I don't want to get fired. So I had to say those things to you. As soon as you get home, look up this guy, look up this person, and this is how you should really be eating. And so I'm seeing a great movement of, I guess you would say, mid-level healthcare providers and physician-level providers who are, are turning away from the mainstream narrative. And they're like, yeah, you know, I'm employed by this corporation, so I have to tell you this. I have to recommend that you take this drug or whatever so I don't get in trouble. But when I get home, when you get home, throw that prescription in the garbage and look up this YouTube channel. Do you think that I, I one of my concerns is you're talking about the mid-range workers catching on, but what what hope does a young doctor who doesn't have your your credentials coming up who has seen the science or maybe knows firsthand of carnivore, mm-hmm. how could they get a job at a major hospital today? Yeah. So I actually have quite a few medical students and then uh, physicians who are in their residency training reach out to me on a daily basis. And they're like, look, I saw my mom reverse her type 2 diabetes watching your videos. I'm 100% on board with the proper human diet, but I'm a third year medical student or I'm a first year resident. What would you recommend? And I actually have a full spiel for people like that. Like you obviously need to make good grades in medical school. So you need to give the answer that they expect on the tests, right? When you're in residency training, you're not going to recommend a a ketogenic diet in morning rounds or in grand rounds because all the other doctors, especially the doctors with the longest white coats, right? The the academic physicians, they're not going to go for that at all. You'll get deemed for that. So keep your mouth shut in morning rounds. Keep your mouth shut at ground rounds. You're not going to change their minds. But your impact comes with the patients. And so the medical students do exactly what the nurses do. They've got a business card with my YouTube channel or a little pamphlet that they printed out at the student center with my YouTube channel on it. And they're like, yeah, you should eat a plant-based diet and avoid animal protein and animal fat and then blah, 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 blah. But when you get home, look this up. And then when when they're looking for a job, they're obviously not going to lead with, hey, I believe in a carnivore diet or I believe in a, a ketogenic diet, or I believe in a, in a proper human diet, they're going to lead with whatever's going to get them the job. But then when they're actually in practice, when they've taken that oath, Matthew, they're going to they're gonna figure out a way, and I call this a ninja tactic, where you're, you're on paper, you're following the, the, the popular paradigm or the expected narrative, but then you find a way to break that paradigm or break the narrative with the patient at the end of the interview. And you say, and now when you get home, look this up because this is the way I eat. And I think the patients that, that resonates with patients for several reasons. Number one, it's unexpected. 
you would never expect a doctor to say, look, I'm not at liberty to tell you the truth about human nutrition. I am not at liberty to tell you that. Think of the, if you're in the patient's shoes sitting there and you're like, so this doctor's telling me that they, they are at risk, their financial health is at risk. If they tell me the truth about human nutrition, that's weird. And then they just said they don't eat the way they just recommended that I eat. They eat this other way and they handed me this business card or this pamphlet. That's happening every day in thousands of exam rooms around the country, thousands of, of operating rooms all over the country, all over the world. This is happening. That it, and it's, it reminds me a lot of the Brad Pitt movie, right? Where the Fight Club movie, where all these mid-level people know that it's, it's corrupt at the top, but they also know they have no power. And so the people who are, who are with me, they're not spitting in the soup or doing worse things in the soup. What they're doing is saying, yeah, don't eat the soup. Here's, this is what you should eat instead. And so I, I think that there's at the top, there's this false sense of security that, yeah, everybody's preaching this plant-based narrative. But what they don't understand, there's a bunch of ninjas behind, behind the scenes who are promoting a proper human diet, and they're just not aware of it. Nice. Well, thank you. You make me feel slightly more encouraged. Yeah, and I think I think we have every reason to be optimistic because when you look at it, obviously Safe was an innovator back in 2008 when he started eating a meat-based diet. And, and but most people are not innovators, and you have to understand that about human nature. Uh, only about 15% of people are early adopters, right, of a new technology or a new discovery. Uh, where where we're going to have our effect is with the early majority, that 33% who's like, oh, uh, you know, I saw a safe talk about this. Now Dr. Barry's talking about it. Here's Matthew talking about this. I'm going to try that. That's, that. that's when you get to such a sizable chunk of the population that it can no longer be ignored. When you've got 40% of the population laughing at you when you recommend a plant-based diet, that becomes quickly uncomfortable. That becomes, and even if all of your other academics are saying, yes, you're right, keep publishing this, at some point when the majority of people, when you're getting ratioed on Twitter every time you post something about a plant-based diet, at some point that becomes uncomfortable and you either move to threads or you make your posts where people can't comment and retweet them or you shut up saying the stupid shit that you've been saying. Yeah, and a shout out to Safe's uh, Twitter feed trolling obese nutritionists. It's probably one of my favorite things in life. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, would take huge offense to him doing that, but I don't because I used to be a fat doctor. And one of one of the my first tweets that blew up is I said, "Never take nutrition advice from a fat doctor." <laughs> and you can just imagine all of the woke people <laughs> like, "How dare you? How <laughs> could you say such a thing?" And I'm like. I used to be a fat doctor and you should not have taken my nutrition advice. But that got thousands and thousands of comments and engagement because people thought I was being insensitive. And I wasn't being insensitive because I think I have every right to say that since I used to be a fat ass doctor. I think I have a right to say, don't take nutrition from a fat doctor. But I think Safe's not being insensitive. He's not being mean or cruel. He's saying you should not take nutrition advice from a fat dietitian. That's that's a logical point. That's not a that's not a cruel point. That I mean, it would be the, exactly the same if he was saying, "Don't take financial advice from a financial advisor who's currently going through bankruptcy and can't afford to pay for his Netflix." 
That's exactly the same sentence, the same statement, but just in a different genre, right? So I absolutely agree. You should never take nutrition advice from a fat dietitian or from a fat director of public health or from a fat doctor. That's, that's a logical statement. That's not a statement placing blame or judging people. Or at the very least, the people on Twitter who are obese nutritionists, virtue signaling should change their profile pics to put like a cat up or something because it's too much easy fodder for safe and then it's off to the races. Yes. You know, I mean, people say this is mean, but no, you know what's really mean is actually going and getting hundreds of people to try food that's bad for them and making them sick. Now, that's yeah. what's really mean. And if um, hurting your fifis and feelings gets you to consider that and gets some of these people to start disrespecting you and stop listening to you, that's really a, a very good thing to be doing. I'll also add one thing. I'm not going to name him now, but there is a low-carb MD doctor who's on the internet and he's now extremely effective and he's like going on all the time doing great work telling people to cut down on bad food and to eat a lot of meat and he used to be very obese and i remember trolling him once he he used to be one of those people talking down to sean baker and talking down to mm-hmm. um the the low carb doctors and he was making fun of carnivores and he was extremely fat. And I remember being one of the very few people who told him, look at yourself, you're fat. Maybe you should stop being fat first before you do this. And he did go and try carnivore. And now he's completely pivoted. His entire business and and, and his entire life has gone, has turned around. He's in great shape and he's, he's feeling a lot better. Bullying works if it's for a good cause. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I get. You could call it ethical bullying, I guess. I don't know, but I, I've actually seen multiple examples of that. I actually, there's a, a dietitian who used to troll me unmercifully on Twitter, and who sent me a direct message. It's like, dude, I'm so sorry for my behavior in the past. I'm now a carnivore. You're exactly right. This is the way. I don't know what was wrong with me, but I apologize. And so he now hearts my tweets instead of trying to troll me continuously. And I think you're seeing this more and more at the mid and the upper mid levels. Uh, even in government, the, F, the the Federal Trade Commission just sent out a letter to 12 or 16 uh, registered dietitian influencers who had taken money from the American Beverage, which is the big lobbying group that lobbies for Pepsi and Coca-Cola and other sugar sweetened beverages and sent them a letter, a cease and desist letter and said, Hey, we're about to find the shit out of you. If you don't start disclosing that you're taking money from the American beverage lobbying group uh, to tell people, Oh, it's fine to drink high fructose corn syrup. This is registered dietitians saying it's fine to have, just drink the small Coke. Don't drink a two liter. Of course, everything's fine in moderation. And they were not putting on their, their social media posts that it was a sponsored ad. And so even the, the FTC just, just sent a letter and saying, Hey, we're, you're about to get a $10,000 fine. If you don't start either stop advertising or you got to put in your post that this is ad, paid advertising and they weren't doing that. And so I, when, when another registered dietitian sees that and they're, they have to think that's completely unethical. Why would they do that? I would never do that. But then it raises that level of doubt. And anytime there's a, a little bit of doubt, like, I trusted this person. I looked up to this person. I wanted to be this person. And now it's revealed that the information they're giving is not only unhelpful, it's actually harmful. And they were getting paid the whole time and weren't disclosing the payment. Excellent. 
All right. I want to get into your books, in particular, the book on labs. I'm interested in that one. So I'm going to begin with my kind of experience with labs. Since going low carb and carnivore, I have been concerned trolled. And the term concerned trolled is different from trolling regularly, regular trolling where people are just trying to make fun of you and get others to laugh at you. Concerned trolling is when somebody acts really concerned about you, but really they're concerned about themselves and they're trying to make you think and trying to make themselves think that you are the problem and that you doing something different is bad for you because if it was not bad for you, then it would be, then what he's doing is going to be bad for him. So whenever, when I used to eat garbage, most people didn't care. When I used to drink two liters of Pepsi or Coca-Cola a day, which I used to do back in my 20s, very few people expressed concern about my health. Now, when I started cutting down on all that stuff and I started eating <laughs> meat primarily, a lot of people suddenly became very concerned about my health, about my kidneys, about my cholesterol, about my thyroid, about all kinds of things. And I have uh, spent a fair amount of money getting tested for these things. And so far, my blood tests have been all right on pretty much everything. Last time I did blood tests was about a year ago. So that was exactly seven years of, after seven years of carnivore. And I practically aced the whole thing. There was a little bit of concern about my thyroid values being slightly on the uh, edge of being unhealthy. So I went and got further tests specifically for the thyroid, but then everything turned out to be fine there. My question for you, are blood tests a scam? <laughs> no, some blood tests are absolutely a scam. Uh -huh. Okay. There are thousands of tests out there. The vast majority of food sensitivity uh, testing is a complete and utter scam. The vast majority of microbiome testing currently is a scam. And here, here's why. I'm not saying that the microbiome is not important. It absolutely is. I think it's going to turn out to be, once we know enough about it, it's going to turn out to be one of the most important tests that you can check. Currently, we don't know enough about which bacteria you should have and shouldn't. We don't know what the ratios are. This is the, the science is too new. So anybody telling you, oh, you need to get this microbiome che uh, test checked. And then always invariably that same company is like, oh, my God, you've got the following problems. You need the following supplements that we happen to sell. Complete, complete garbage. There's no science that supports that at all. But there is a set of lab tests that absolutely can reveal your degree of metabolic health or metabolic unhealth. And so many doctors don't know about these tests that that's why I wrote the book, Common Sense Labs, is because we had every day we would have a hundred questions. What, what labs do I need to ask my doctor for? Or uh, I think the most important one that I talk about in the book is the fasting insulin test. And so, for, for the listeners, you can be very hyperinsulinemic, have a very high level of insulin in your bloodstream, but have a normal blood sugar and have a normal hemoglobin A1C. And if your doctor doesn't check your fasting insulin level, then you have no idea that you're hyperinsulinemic, which has been closely linked with hundreds of metabolic conditions and diseases, skin conditions, mental conditions, gut conditions, joint conditions. Hundreds and hundreds of conditions, the more hyperinsulinemic you are, the more your risk of suffering from these diseases. And so I think that's the number one most important 
tests that I talk about in the book. But there's a there's a list of, of tests that you need to have checked that have been around for enough years that have enough research backing them that we know definitively this test is going to give you a useful answer. The, some tests may be important, but we don't know enough about the results to even know what to counsel you on when we get the results back. Some, like the, the food sensitivity testing, are just an abject waste of money because invariably they'll come back and tell you to avoid some ancestral food that human beings have literally been eating since before recorded history. And so that on its face makes no difference. Then when you look into how the food sensitivity testing actually is performed, it, it looks at IgG, uh, one of the immunoglobulins. And basically what it means is you've eaten that food recently. It doesn't mean you're in any way sensitive to that food. And so in the Common Sense Labs, I try to talk about the important tests that you should have checked without talking about the, the superfluous tests that are just a waste of money and invariably are going to lead to a company saying, oh, you need this, this long list of supplements that we happen to sell. Yeah. yeah, we've discussed uh, insulin extensively on this podcast with Dr. Ben Bickman. He's yes. uh, done a great job explaining this. I think it's it's an enormously important topic. I think people should be caring a lot more about their insulin than the latest fad. Uh, the whole microbiome thing is a little pet peeve of mine because for me, it seems like it is just adding an extra layer of sophistication to… Yep. Of uh, pseudo-sophistication. Yeah, that adds nothing of value. In other words, in my simple grug brain of uh, thinking about nutrition, and really, I, I found the the dumber I am, the less sophisticated my thinking about nutrition is, the more um, successful it is and the healthier that I become. So in my simple peasant brain, I eat meat, I get healthy. Yep. I eat junk, I get unhealthy. Okay, and there are millions of ways you can explain these relationships, uh, but I don't care. I mean, I just I see it in myself. I my I get bloated, I get slower, I yeah. uh, don't have energy, I, my brain is foggy, and then if I eat well, then that stuff goes. So for me, it seems rather strange. I mean, maybe I'm just a silly peasant, but you're adding an extra layer of sophistication where you're saying. Ah, well, this food creates this kind of thing in your gut called a microbiome, this one particular kind of microbiome, and that particular kind of microbiome is associated with these particular kind of health problems, which manifest with these kind of symptoms. And that's just way too much for my simple brain, because why do I need to know about all of these different kinds of bacteria and microbiomes and how they associate with things when yep. I can already see the direct link? Eat meat, feel good. Eat junk, feel bad. Why do we have to overcomplicate this? It's also been proven, shown to be demonstrably false, say, because the vast majority of the companies doing microbiome testing they believe in a plant-based diet and they'll, they'll try to sell you a long list of plant-based supplements. But for people who are exclusively carnivore like you and I, uh, Matthew, are you carnivore? I don't, I don't know. I'm about 95%. 90, yeah. So all three of us sitting here who are for our age, very, very healthy, very vigorous, very virile, vigorous, and potent, as, as G. Gordon Liddy used to say, we should not be healthy at all because eating a meat-only diet should have destroyed our gut microbiome, right? 
it should be either destroyed or it should be such an unhealthy ratio that we could barely get out of bed in the morning. If the plant-based people are correct about what their current paradigm is about the microbiome. And uh, I get that question a lot on Twitter, like, well, what about your microbiome? And I'm like, well, my microbiome must be doing great or I wouldn't feel as great as I do because I, I, I predict that as more research continues to come out about the microbiome, I think it's going to be hugely important. I think it's going to be very important. And one day in the future, when we've got enough research, I think that medicine will use tweaks to the microbiome to help a great many things. But the ultimate tweak for the microbiome, the ultimate hack for the microbiome is to eat lots of fatty red meat. I've actually taken a couple of the microbiome tests and it, they, it, and this was after being carnivore for five years. And they would come back and be like, wow, your gut microbiome is very diverse and very healthy, but you still need to take the following supplements that we happen to sell. But none of these tests came back and like, oh my God, your microbiome's been decimated by something. You need to go to the emergency room. You're very unhealthy. They all, after five years of eating nothing but fatty red meat, said your microbiome looks great, except for the following few minor things that we can help you with a supplement. That wouldn't, that wouldn't happen if eating almost nothing but red, fatty red meat was harmful to the gut microbiome. And I think we'll see that as more and more research comes out. And there's a great example in history. Uh, back when x-rays were invented in the late 1800s, when Dr. Rentgen invented the x-ray, people were using in the, in the 1910s and 1920s, they were using x-ray radiation for everything. People would get us, you would go to an x-ray salon and they would give you a suntan with x-rays. This is, this is, this is documented because they knew just about, uh, just enough about x-rays to use them for various things, but had no depth of understanding about the danger of x-rays, right? And so they would use it to treat psoriasis because it makes it go away right before it causes skin cancer. They would use it for eczema. They would use it to give you a suntan. They would use it for all kinds of things inappropriately because they didn't understand enough about the science of it yet. And we look back now and go, oh my God, people used to literally go and let them spray x-rays at their face to get a suntan because it will work. Yes, it will give you a suntan right before it gives you skin cancer. And so I think that same model of thinking applies with the microbiome. I think it's going to be hugely important, but currently we don't know shit about shit. We don't know enough about it to be making recommendations about diet or supplements. We know just enough to know that it's important, but that's all, that's the depth and length and breadth of our knowledge currently. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like it's, um, it's counterproductive to be pontificating about it when we we already know what we care about. We 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 don't get born with a goal of developing a certain kind of bacteria in our stomach. Nobody cares about that. Nobody knows these bacteria. You can't tell them apart if you saw them in the street. So what you care about is your health. And so for me, this is this is another example of why you should stay away from PubMed because then you're going to gaslight yourself into thinking, oh, no, well, I'm healthy and I'm doing great, but I don't have this kind of thing in my stomach. So clearly I should be waking up to a kale smoothie every morning. And now you've gone and ruined your gut by eating all of these 
really not good things. I mean, people think kale is good for you because it has this halo because it's green and because all these influencers online say that it's good. But if studying the microbiome is going to make you drink kale smoothies, then you're, again, you're better off just not studying it and not reading about it, which is, again, my simple peasant way of <laughs> continuing to avoid reading nutrition science. My, my, my take on this is that we are the only species that has developed nutrition science and the only species that has developed diabetes and obesity. I don't think that that's a coincidence. Uh, all these animal... Yeah, all these animals out there reading absolutely no nutrition studies can figure out how to eat and stay healthy. Only us and the animals that we keep at home and feed based on the recommendations of nutritionists have developed this. So I'm going to stay on the safe side. <laughs> Just saying, so am I. And you know, the truth of it is, the truth of the matter is that the average person listening to this, you only have so much willpower. And you only have so much motivation and you only have so much money. And when people get involved in nutrition and health, just the average person, they're like, oh man, I, I love this idea. They, it's so easy for them to make the false choice. And that's another thing I try to talk about always. So if you're living on Pepsi Cola and, and, and Cheetos and donuts, you know that's not healthy, but you don't care, right? And, and that's fine. If you don't care about your health, then I don't care either. It's fine. Go ahead and eat the, the, the Cheetos and drink the Pepsi. But once people try to start to care, they're at a very vulnerable spot because they're liable to be presented with this false choice, this false solution, which is a plant-based diet. And indeed, if you stop drinking Pepsi and eating Cheetos and Doritos and Ding Dongs and you start eating a whole food plant-based diet, guess what? You're going to feel better. And you're going to lose weight and your A1C is going to improve. But unless you're taking a handful of supplements and you're eating for about 16 hours a day, you're going to develop nutritional deficiencies and you're going to uh, develop long-term problems. You're never going to reverse your type 2 diabetes. You might improve the A1C number, but you're still going to be a type 2 diabetic or at least have prediabetes. And so they bought into this false, false choice and they spend all of their self-control and their motivation and their stamina, their willpower, all of their money on all this plant-based shit. And they only get so much of an improvement, right? And that, that same thing you see happening with food sensitivity testing, which is expensive, microbiome testing, which is expensive. And you invari invariably, once you go down those, those lines of reasoning, you're presented with this false choice. Oh, you need this line of supplements that we just happened to sell. Oh, you need to eat this this weird barrier root or herb from the, you know, the base of the Himalayan mountains that, and, and it's only $49.95 a month and we've got a recurring order thing. You can just sign up for that. And so they wind up wasting when, when they have that motivation, when they're on fire, like, by God, I want to be healthy like Matthew and safe. They wind up going down the wrong rabbit hole and then they, they've wasted all of their self-control, their willpower, their motivation, their stamina and their money. And nothing got better. And many of those people will just, they'll be defeated. They'll give up and say, screw it. I'm going back to the Cheetos and Pepsi because this, this crap didn't help me either. And it also wasted all my money. And so that's why I'm, I'm so active trying to say, no, this is simple. Just do what safe does. Just eat meat till you're full and then don't eat again until you're hungry. And then when you're hungry again, eat fatty red meat until you're full and then 
repeat. That's it's literally that simple. There's nothing else required. You don't need any any of those lines of supplements. You don't need any of that extra testing. There's a very limited amount of testing you need to do to check your metabolic health. But guess what? Doctors freak out when I say this, but if you're eating like Matthew and me and safe, you don't need to check any labs at all, ever, unless you're feeling unwell. If you're feeling unwell, yeah, go to the doctor, get some stuff checked. But if you're like, dude, I haven't felt this good. And let me just tell you guys, I'm going to be 55 years old in four days. Oh, wow. You don't look at it at all. 55 years of age. I feel better now at 35. And I am confident that if Elon invented a time machine, I could go back in time and kick my 35 year old's ass right now at 55. And I don't need any labs checked. I'm going to get them on my 55th birthday just to post them on Twitter to troll all the plant-based people and say, how am I not dead? How am I not diabetic? How do I not have cancer? Because I eat predominantly fatty red meat and eggs with the yolk. How am I still alive? Yeah, I think this is this is a very important point. I uh, When I say this, people laugh at me, but labs should not be a, a hobby. It should not be a thing that people just do. It's not a part of life that you go to a lab right. and get tested. If something's wrong, you get tested for it. And I've said this before, and I've had people laugh outrageously, like, oh, one day you're just going to drop dead. One day you're going to find out that you have this and you have that. And I mean, it's understandable in your case because you're stuffing garbage down your throat every uh, morning. I, I can see where you get that fear from. But for those of us who are able to understand how our body works, who have gotten to a point where we've seen this body function and we've seen how it malfunctions, we know the major cause of problems. 99% of people, they are suffering from problems that are caused by this. Sure, there are other problems. I'm not going to live forever. I am going to develop health problems at some point. These things can happen and they will probably happen for all of us. But when they do happen, we think about them. But this notion that you are just this decrepit thing that's only kept together thanks to the glue of modern medicine constantly checking in on you and providing you with their highly lucrative uh, pills. I don't think that that is true. Yep, I totally agree. And I think I, I liken it to the Pareto principle. Everybody only has a finite amount of willpower and stamina and money. 85% of your medical problems, are you listening? 85% of your medical problems are coming from the, the, the pseudo food that you're eating, the Franken food, the fiat food, and the, the real ancestrally appropriate foods that you're not eating. That's 85% of your health, the cause of your health conditions, okay? 10% of the cause is lifestyle. You may not be living the best uh, proper human life. And all the rest of it, all the rest of it, the millions of, of alternative medicine solutions and supplements and testing, the billions of dollars of pharmaceuticals and, and mainstream medicine testing, that's the other 5%. Focus all of your money, all of your resources, all of your stamina, all of your self-control, all of your willpower, focus all of that on the 85% solution, which is your diet, what you eat and what you don't. Then if you've got any left over, focus that on the 10% of lifestyle changes. And who cares about the 5%? I don't care about that. 
If I focus on the 95% of what's causing me to be unhealthy, I feel like that's going to give me a solution, oh, I don't know, 95% of the time. Once you've done that, then it makes sense to start worrying about tweaking the 5%. But I find that it's... And only then. That's right. I find that it's absurd that people who... um, even, Even people who are health conscious who think of their cheat day as being this absolutely sacred thing. You know, I, I can't live without my cheat day. And they, they spend their whole week adding things to the list of things that they're going to be consuming on their cheat day. And they end up essentially turning themselves into a trash can on one day of the week. And then they're completely obsessed about t- drinking this tea and taking that supplement and getting this blood test and all of this stuff, which, I mean, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to move the needle as long as you're ingesting all that stuff. But I think also a part of this is, I mean, uh, I'm slightly contradicting myself here because earlier I said Twitter and Instagram, that that's the real scientific method because these influencers are out there putting their name out. But there is an element of uh, perverse incentives there, which is it's, it's not very easy to make a career and to finance a YouTube channel and to finance a social media account and have all of these things uh, grow properly if you're out there telling people to just eat meat and drink water, which is what you're doing, which is what's very admirable about what you and Sean Baker managed to pull off because you stick to the main and most important message. But realistically, though, you could make probably a lot more money if you were out there selling people on one brand new magical elixir every couple of months take this supplement and take this little thing and uh, buy this thing and uh, don't do that and do this and as long as you keep giving people this novelty as long as you keep shocking them with new things as long as you keep allowing uh, telling them also another part of it is i think a big part of what low carb and the ketogenic influencers do unfortunately is they sell sugar. They sell you sugar and they essentially um, make your sugar kosher for you by selling you on the idea that, look, if the guy, you know, if the low carb guy is saying you can have this hit of sugar, then this is fine. And that's, 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 I think, a big part of it. And a big part of what draws people to them because let's face it, <laughs> you know, Sean Baker posts the same steak every day. I mean, I love it for me. It's great, but it, it, I mean, it's, it, nothing looks better as far as I'm concerned, but it's not that viral to keep sharing the same glorious ribeye every day. But if he slathers yeah. it with honey, if he starts eating all this other sugary stuff next to it, and he starts talking yep. about how, you know what, it's not so bad to have a little bit of sugar here and there, that's going to get him a lot more viral content and a lot of sugar addicts are going to be more likely to follow this kind of line of reasoning rather than the other. And I can actually verify that. Say, uh, my wife, Nisha, and I, we, she's on social media talking about a proper human diet as well. And we're every day we get emails from this company or that company saying, hey, we'd love to partner with you. We'd love to do an affiliate with you. We'd love to have you as our main sponsor. And I said, I wonder how much money we leave on the table a year. And we actually went back through our emails. And in 2022, we left three over $3 million on the table of money that we could have accepted to promote this supplement or this herb or this root or this whatever. And, and then at least once a week, I get a, an email from a 
basically a, a company that just makes supplements that let influencers like me brand the supplement. And so you have some amount of say, I want this much of that, and this much of this. And then there's a line of Dr. Berry supplements and every single one of them, when they look at our social media engagement and our depth of engagement on social media, they're like, dude, you could make at least five and a half million dollars a year if you had your own line of supplements. And I'm like, yeah, I'm aware of that. I know that. I've been, I've been being offered this for eight years now. I'm never going to have a line of Dr. Berry supplements because I think it's bullshit. And I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to partner with this pillow or this infrared light or this microbiome test or this food sensitivity test. I'm never going to do that. And I think in large part, a lot of people appreciate that. Like, you know, this guy's leaving millions of dollars on the table because he's, he's actually promoting something that's real. I'm not in this to make a million dollars. I'm in this to save a million lives. Because I'm a doctor, I took an oath. And I really meant that oath, unlike evidently some doctors. And so that's why I'm doing this. I'm not, I, I could, I could easily make an extra eight million a year if I had my own line of supplements and I took every brand deal that somebody pushed at me. And I would have probably have a bigger social media following because of all the novelty, all the new things. Everybody would tune in every day to see what latest new thing Dr. Barry is recommending. But I'm, I, do you not feel like that's part of the fiat economy? doing that, promoting every new thing, that's false. That's that's not true. That's not real. I'm here to talk about a proper human diet, not the latest human diet, not the, not the, you know, oh my God, this is the latest. I don't, I don't care about that stuff. I care about people reversing type two diabetes, reversing hypertension, reversing obesity, reversing fatty liver, improving mental health. That's what I'm here for. And if I make some money along the way, great, but I'm not going to go out of my way to do brand deals that I, that'll that'll get me a million bucks a year. I'm not interested in that. Yeah, no, I salute you for that. I think it's uh, it's just at some point people just need to be told the same message over and over again. I know it's boring. There's no novelty, but you know what? Novelty and fun is not what you do to get healthy. Novelty and fun are what you do after you get healthy. You're never going to enjoy a meal as much as you will enjoy the health that you will have and the things that you'll be able to do when you're healthy. I mean, the, the kind of life that you're going to have when you've fixed your metabolism and gotten your health in order is going to be incomparable to anything else. So stop worrying about whether your meals are entertaining or not, because if you need your meals to be entertaining, you need better meals and you need better entertainment in life. And the way to do that- You need a better life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the food you're going to eat today, if that's going to be the highlight of your day, you've got bigger problems than just your diet. Okay. You need to fix your life because there should be much more exciting things in your daily life than what you're going to eat later today. Absolutely. And the way to fix that is to fix your health because once you do that, you're going to become- a lot more fit. You're going to be able to do all kinds of other adventures. You're going to become a lot more attractive. You're going to become a lot better in intimate relations with people. It's going to be a much better life if you just fix that. So stop looking for the uh, joy to come from the meal, from the dishes that you eat. Yeah. If there's one thing you can do to improve your performance, not only in the boardroom, but also the bedroom, it's fix your diet. Eat a proper human diet. That's that's the 85% solution to both rooms. Or if you want to take it to the back alley, your performance there is going to be best if you're eating a proper human diet. 
Absolutely. All right. Your other book on how to kick ass after 50. Yeah. Well, I'm still not 50. I've still got another uh, six and a bit years to go. But what should we be looking out for other than, you know, the obvious eat meat? Yeah. Well, if, if the average person eating the standard Western diet, the fiat diet, 50 is old. At 50, you're starting to think about retirement. You're starting to, the, very often, the sofa becomes the sexiest thing in your house. The thing you want to be cuddled up with the most is either your lazy boy recliner or the sofa. And for so many people, 50s old. And uh, I wrote this book with Zane Griggs, who's a fitness instructor in Nashville. He looks better than me. He's a year younger than me, but I mean, he looks amazing. He looks like a muscular Kennedy. Uh, and so, he and I decided to write this book because I feel like that that the vast majority of of mainly men, but also women in their 40s, they're like, well, it's just my age, right? I'm just getting older. No, dude, it ain't. It, it's not your age. That's not what it is. And especially when a guy's 50, he's like, what do you expect? I'm 50. I'm 55. I'm 60. I'm, I mean, you know, I'm washed up. I'm over the hill. No, that is not. That is not what a, what a, what a healthy 50-year-old human feels like. That's not what a healthy 55-year-old human feels like. A healthy 50-year-old, or you're getting close to 50, or you're a little over 50, that's the prime of your life. You've got all this wisdom that you can apply to your own life or share with others. You've got all of this acquired intelligence that you can apply to your own life or share with people you care about. You've got all this physical strength and stamina if you're eating a proper human diet, that you can use to impact the world in a, in a positive way. Well, both positive for your finances, but positive for other people's health as well. But you're leaving all that on the table by believing this lie that if you're 50 or older, you're washed up. That's just not the case. And so we decided to write this book to let everybody who's approaching 50 or over 50 know if you can still fog a mirror when you breathe on it, it's not too late. You, you're, I don't care how old you are. You're still an athlete. You still can strengthen your muscles and bones and your mind. You can lose the fat, but you've got to understand some basic E principles. 85% of it is what you eat and what you don't eat. The other 10, 10% Zane takes care of as a, as a fitness trainer, he talks about that 10% in the book. And then we don't talk about the, the other 5% because it's really not important if you've got the 95% that matters under your belt, right? And so that's, that's what kicking ass after 50. And we've got a guy in our private group. He had a t-shirt made that says kicking ass after 70 because he's 77 years old. And he said, he said, if you had told me in my forties what I could be doing when I'm 77, I would not have believed it. But eating a proper human diet, living a proper human life, I'm able to do things at 77 years of age. He's kicking ass, okay? And if you don't believe me, just ask his wife. She'll tell you. And that that's the kind of life you can live. And so just imagine instead of starting to think about retirement at 50, you're able to start, you're able to think about starting a new business at 50. Not, not in a like a negative light, like, oh my God, I lost my job. I'm gonna have to figure out something. No, you're you're thinking forward thinking. You're thinking about the future because your physical health and your mental health are so on point that you're able to think about, hey, I'm 50. I've got enough intelligence and wisdom now. I'm going to start a new thing because it's exciting, because it's going to be financially rewarding, not because 
oh, I lost my job because I'm so fat and type two diabetic and so mentally foggy, I couldn't pay attention. And I got fired for sleeping on the job or whatever. That does not have to be your life after 50. You can absolutely kick ass after 50 if you know the key principles. One of the early people to inspire me on this journey to go low carb very early on, about uh, 12 years, 13, 14 years ago, is Art Devaney. I'm sure you've heard of him. He was in his 70s at that time, and he's now 86. I just checked. And in his 70s, the things that he could do, the way that he looked was truly inspirational. And it was just mind-blowing for me because from my mind, if you're in your 70s, you're lucky to be alive. You know, But by the 60s, you look around, most people, they just basically fall apart by that age. And you're not supposed to be productive. You're not supposed to be healthy. And there he was doing lifts and growing his muscles and uh, just living life to the fullest in his 70s. And now he's in his 80s. I I haven't um, heard from him very frequently recently. I don't know what he's up to these days, but he was doing very, very well in his 70s and early 80s. And I think uh, there are reasons to believe in my mind that I think our conception of age is likely very different. If you look at a lot of the societies where people eat meat only, they seem to live a lot longer. We see these stories from, say, places like Alaska, the Inuit societies. They, I mean, they they have obviously there's there are causes of mortality that because you're living in a primitive society, you could get mauled by a bear, you could die young through all kinds of different reasons. But if you get old, if you make it to eighty, you could still be pretty healthy in your eighties, and if you stay there for a while, you could live pretty long. And I wonder if um, we're going to see carnivores live a lot longer. Um, Oh, I absolutely predict that. I actually predict that uh, when we have enough carnivore children around, there will have to be special classes in public school because it'll be unethical to school them with the general population because they'll, they'll be so much more They'll have such a higher IQ. They'll be so much more mentally acute and aware and able to learn. Bonnie Blue, our 14-month-old, it's crazy the things that she can come up with. Our four-year-old son yesterday used the word congruent in a sentence, four years old. Okay, so I predict that we're going to see this at both extremes of age, young carnivores and then elderly carnivores. You're going to see humans doing things that you thought were not possible. And we're already seeing this in the carnivore community, people that should be dead by all rights or not. There was a time in human history when elderly people were valued for their collected wisdom and their collected intelligence. And I think that the the fiat economy led to us basically discounting older people. We don't, we don't care what they think. We don't want to know what they know because they're part of the old way. They're not part of the new way. And they have nothing of value to, to give us. And I think you're also going to see a resurgence of younger people actually seeking out the intelligence and wisdom of, of older people who have been there and done that and sold the t-shirt, not bought the t-shirt. And so I, I predict that you're going to see all kinds of, of, of ways in which People return to the old ways as they adopt a proper human diet because, you know, we had this figured out a long time ago. Uh, we had the latest technology back then. And whenever, whatever time period you want to talk about, at one point, a rock that you had hit with another rock and formed a sharp edge, that was the cutting edge technology of the day. That was it. 
That was the latest technology. That was technology. But a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, this is basically a sharp rock. That's what this is. It's the sharpest rock we can come up with today. And so once you start to understand technology is not something we just invented in modern society. We've been working with technology since we had opposable thumbs. It's just what's the latest technology. And I think once we start to understand, oh, there is a proper human diet that gives me my best health, you start to naturally look at other ways. How else is my life? How else is it? Is it a simulacrum of what it should be? And I think that's a very important question for people to ask themselves. And then they start looking at the economy. They start looking at business. They start looking at law and religion and saying, hey, what, what other things do I believe that are just foolish, foolish, basically fads that have come on in the last few decades that's very popular right now, but is going to completely fall by the wayside once enough people adopt a proper human diet and start thinking about the world properly again. Absolutely. So what are your thoughts on children's nutrition? Are your kids carnivores too? Yeah, our kids are, we would call them ketovore or super carnivores. At least 80% of their daily nutrition comes from meat and eggs. They, they will eat some nuts occasionally, some berries. Uh, when they go to a birthday party, they'll have a little piece of cake or donut because they're young and metabolically flexible. It's not a big deal. But uh, our son, Beckett, who's four, uh, now he, he knows if he goes to a birthday party, he'll eat a bite or two of the junk. But he's already had the, he's, he's got such a clean system that he's already had the experience of eating too much cake or too much, too many donuts at a birthday party or too many potato chips and then having squirty poop for three days. He already knows. He's already learned from his N equals one experiment. And so he'll have a little nibble of this and that, but he already, he already self-regulates without us even saying anything to him because he's, he's already messed up and had too much and he knows what happens when he eats that. And so it's amazing to watch a four-year-old human self-regulate just like my sheep in the pasture. They'll eat a little clover. They'll eat a little of this, but they know not to eat too much of this out of the other. They know they need to eat certain things, even though they, they don't have a degree in nutrition. Right. They don't have a bachelor's degree in anything, nor does he. But he's already learned enough about nutrition to self-regulate. He knows he eats best when he feels best when he eats only meat. He knows his gut health is best when he eats mainly meat. And so he, he's also learned I can have a few cashews. Not a big deal. I can have a few blueberries. Not a big deal. But he knows not to eat too much of any of the plant food because his best health, he already figured out at four years of age, is when he eats mostly meat. Yeah, and no, I agree. I think my my secret weapon is when they have birthdays, I load them up on meat beforehand so that they, when they go there, they're not hungry. And then when they're there, I don't like to hover over them and be like, don't have this and have that. I'll, I'll let them have right. whatever they want. And right. then I'll just be there when they're back home and feeling badly. And then they can't have much usually because they're full and because they immediately get a very big sugar high from it. But then I'm always there when they get the... um when they start feeling bad after it or after Halloween, once when we were in the U S for Halloween and they went out and they just had all kinds of awful stuff. And I just spent the next day saying, remember this is what happens when you eat this stuff and they'll get it. It's, it's really simple. I mean, really the secret weapon, as you said, is just not having a degree in nutrition and then everything becomes very simple. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fill up on fatty meat and everything else falls into place. Absolutely. What about grains? Do you feed the kids grains? Do you think there's value no, there? No, 
neither of our kids uh, have ever had any grains at all, except for the birthday cake that they might have eaten at a party or the donut they might have eaten at church. There are no grains in our house. The closest things to grains that we have are some uh, nut flour crackers that they have as a treat occasionally. That's the closest thing to grains that's ever went into their mouth. And that's the way I'll keep it in this house until they're of the age of majority. Yeah, that's that's a good way to go about it. Well, Dr. Ken, thank you so much for all your time. This has been absolutely a pleasure and very informative and inspiring. Thank you for all you do. You've cured more people with your YouTube channel than most major U.S. hospitals, I would wager. Thank you. Please keep it up. <laughs> I will. I'll never stop. All right. So remind us, where can people find you on the internet and uh, what is your YouTube channel? So if you just go to YouTube and search for Dr. Barry, uh, I'll pop up. And what you can do, I've got over a thousand videos on YouTube now. So what you can do is search by my name and whatever medical condition you currently suffer from. So you can type in Dr. Barry fatty liver, Dr. Barry diabetes, Dr. Barry hypertension, Dr. Barry eczema, Dr. Barry acne, and then those videos that will pop up that are relevant to you. Also, I talk about medication. I talk about lifestyle. I talk about lots of different things on there relating to health and nutrition and medicine. And so if you're on a particular medication, type in Dr. Barry in the name of the medication. I probably have a video about that. When I'm feeling particularly snarky, you'll find me on Twitter. If I'm feeling loving and helpful, you'll find me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, if I'm feeling informative, I'll be on YouTube. I've got the three books. I think Safe City will link to them in the show notes if you're interested. We also have a private community now with over 6,700 people. Uh, and it's five bucks a month if, uh, before people think I'm trying to clean up and make a million bucks. It's $5 a month to get in the, the private group. But these are people from all walks of life. We've got 10 different uh, Primal Health certified health coaches in there. If people think they need a health coach, we got them. But you've got this huge group of people, and it's kind of like a giant Facebook group, except that not Facebook. And also, we don't sell any of your private information to other companies. It's just a group of like-minded people going on this journey, discovering a proper human diet together and realizing health that they never dreamed that they'd have again. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. And I uh, wish you all the best of luck. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking with you, gentlemen. All right. Have a good day. <laughs>